Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is The Goths Part 2, Athanaric and Fritigern. Before we get started today, I have my very first correction to a previous episode, Podcast Achievement Unlocked. It is a minor thing, but the Gothic word for chief is pronounced Rix, not Rix. Also, Rix and Rex are related, sharing the same Indo-European root. I rend my garments in shame, and shall endeavor to better vet etymologies from now on. You may have noticed that this episode is quite a bit longer than the last one, and that's because we've got a lot to cover today if there's any hope of keeping the story moving forward at a reasonable pace. I also feel like I should warn you that this episode does contain some descriptions of some fairly horrid behavior, and uh, you should probably just get used to that. This is the Dark Ages podcast, after all. However, if... If that kind of thing does bother you, I will warn you when it is coming up, and you can skip ahead of it. Last time, I ended by threatening to talk about Gothic village life and social organization, and I'm still going to start there, just to tie up that loose end. So here we go. The village was the center of Gothic life, and for the vast majority, loyalty to the village and to the family was far more important than loyalty to any chief or judge or king. This followed naturally from the difficulties of communication. The chief was far away, he could not exercise direct control over the affairs of the village at all times and in all circumstances, so the social order of the village would be the mechanism that responded to most everyday issues. That social order was centered around the idea of retainership. The head of the household, called the Frausia, was responsible for the care and direction of his family, of course, but also men who were pledged to serve and fight for him, who were called his guards in Gothic. This is a structure very common among the German tribes across Europe, and has been suggested as one of the roots of medieval feudalism. Though, as in all things historical, feudalism has many roots, and the connection isn't as straightforward as it at first seems. The Frausia and his retainers and family were also surrounded by a cloud of slaves. We have no idea what percentage of the inhabitants of Gutheuda were slaves, but it appears to have been substantial. They came in multiple varieties, mostly defined by how they'd entered into bondage in the first place. Much like the Roman Republic then, the acquisition of slaves became a major incentive for raiding. I left the story off last time with the defeat of Cannabaudes by Aurelian in 271. Effectively, the campaign assured the Danube frontier a period of peace and time to recover. The five years of Aurelian's reign marked the beginning of a startling recovery of Roman fortunes, and he earned himself the honorific Restitutor Orbis Mundi, the restorer of the world. Part of his strategy for strengthening Rome, though, was a retreat. The province of Dacia Traiana, which corresponds roughly to modern Transylvania and the Hungarian plain, was exposed, with no strong natural borders to protect it from the many and various tribes that surrounded it. There had been rich gold mines there when Trajan had taken control, but those were played out, and Aurelian could see that it was no longer worth the effort or expense to defend the province. In a gradual process, Roman power was therefore withdrawn from Dacia Traiana. It was an organized and orderly retreat, but it was a retreat nonetheless. As dozens of nations have since discovered, the withdrawal of colonial power triggers a struggle for dominance among those left behind. 
Dozens of tribes vied with each other for Dacia, and most of them will just be a list of names to you, like the Pukini, the Bastarni, the Gepids, but I will pause to note that the Vandals were among the contestants, as were a tribe called the Typhali. The Typhali ultimately made common cause with the Goths, and together these two managed to take the territory and hold it. They were in complete control by 350 at the very latest, and probably earlier than that. The Typhali became the Tervingai's cavalry partners, and they would ride together for the next two centuries. They partnered with the Goths, but clearly kept their own identity, as they are attested as a separate tribe much later, when the Goths settled in France. And to this day, the town of Tifoge, in the Vendée of western France, bears their name. I know that's a bit of a digression, but I didn't want to pass over them without mention. So, by the first half of the 4th century, Scythian Gothia had reached its greatest extent, stretching from the Hungarian plain across the Carpathians to the Ukraine and southern Russia, and northward their influence was felt all the way to the Baltic. A new element found its way into Gothic society around this time as an indirect consequence of their success, and that was Christianity. The raids of the 3rd century had been aimed as much at the capture of slaves as at material riches. Among those slaves captured from Roman farms and towns were a significant population of Christians. And soon, those Christians began to have an impact on their captors. Communities grew, contacts with the empire were maintained, and priests and teachers were needed. It also appears that the Greek-speaking cities of the Crimea maintained their religious convictions as well, and may have been a minor source of Christianization. The role of the dice determined that the strain of Christianity that was injected into the Gothic body politic was Arianism. This would be significant for Gotho-Roman relations in several ways moving forward. The distinction between Arianism and Orthodox Christianity hinges on what seems to be a really, really, really esoteric bit of theological minutiae today. I'll present the central ideas of the heresy at some point in the future, as I simply don't have room today. But the important takeaway is that the Arian versus Orthodox split is the central religious controversy of the 4th century. I have mentioned Ulfalas a few times already in the previous episode, and it's time to introduce him properly. He was of Cappadocian descent, with his ancestors having been taken as slaves, around 264 from near the city of Parnassus. Parnassus is pretty much right in the middle of modern Turkey, so there's an indication of how deeply those Gothic raids penetrated the Roman heartland. His family appears to have been pretty well integrated into Gothic society by the time of his birth, around 311. The details of his early life are sketchy because the doctrinal differences among the sources. Arian and Orthodox sources are both eager to use his story to make their own points. We know, though, that he traveled inside the empire, though we have no idea under what circumstances. He was consecrated as a bishop in 340 by Eusebius of Nicomedia, who baptized the Emperor Constantine on his deathbed, so our Ophelaz had some cred. He returned to his homeland and evangelized among his people for seven years. Exactly how successful he was depends on what source you're reading. Arian sources credit him as essentially the St. Patrick of the Goths, while Orthodox sources give credit more to others. Either way, the new religion gained enough of a foothold in his time to spark a reaction, which is to say, persecution. Ophelas wrote to the emperor in Constantinople and received permission from Constantius II to immigrate with his flock into the province of Moesia, I should pause and mention, since I didn't last time, Moesia corresponds to basically the northern half of modern Bulgaria, with Thrace being the area to the south of that. 
Ophelaz's group would become known as the Gothi Minores, the Little Goths. The move had advantages for all parties. The Goths obviously gained a homeland free from religious persecution with land to farm and the protection and support of the empire. The Romans partially repopulated Moesia, making it able to produce food and generate tax revenue, as well as a source of ready soldiers, as the agreement with the Minores included the stipulation that they provide the legions with troops. Recruitment was a constant problem for the Roman army, and the problem of defending the long border was never really solved. In the comparative peace on the south bank of the Danube, Ulfilas undertook his great project of translating the Bible into his native language, after inventing an alphabet for it. He more than likely oversaw a team of scholars and scribes in the undertaking, as the Bible is, I am told, quite long. Just for flavor, I thought I would read the first few lines of the Lord's Prayer in Gothic. Just for fun. Pronunciation apologies in advance, of course. Ata unsar thuen himenem, winae namothen, quimai theudnasis theens, orthai wilia theens, sveen himena ya ana arpai. It has a nice rhythm to it, I think, and there are already words that I can pick out as distant ancestors of modern English or German. If you'd like to see it written out in Gothic script, I've put a link on the website. Not all Gothic Christians followed Ulfilas across the river. Communities remained behind, embedded in their traditional village lives, quietly or not so quietly, practicing and preaching their faith. The problem presented by Christianity to Gothic chiefs was the same as the problem it had presented to Roman emperors for so long. It suggested a split in loyalties. Every Rix traced his lineage and therefore his authority back to an ancestral god. The Christian insistence on the illegitimacy of those gods was a challenge to the legitimacy of the Rix himself, so the Christians would have to go. The form of the Gothic persecution took a form familiar to those carried out by the Romans against Christians and Jews, though by necessarily not as wide-ranging or as coordinated. Villages were ordered to sacrifice to their ancestral gods, these taking the form of an animal sacrifice then shared out in a ritual meal. Refusal to take part in either the sacrifice or the meal was proof of unacceptable beliefs. A first offense usually resulted in banishment from the village, which was harsh enough in a collectivist agrarian society. But we see in the story of St. Sabah that such miscreants were often readmitted to their villages as soon as the chief's men had disappeared over the horizon. First loyalty was to the immediate family and immediate associates in the village, not necessarily to the chief or judge who was far away, as I've said. Sabah, by the way, was caught again and hauled in front of the chief. Sabah was defiant. He courted martyrdom in a way that is baffling and a little bit aggravating to the modern mind, and the chief ordered him to be drowned in a nearby river. Even then, the men assigned to do the deed tried to let him go, as the chief would never know the difference. But Sabah shamed them, insisting that they do their duty and not break their fidelity to their lord, and he was duly drowned, and joined 330 or so others who died for their faith in two bursts of persecution in the 340s and 360s. These Gothic martyrs, who under most circumstances would be canonized and held up as examples across the Christian world, have a spottier reputation than other victims of persecution of the time. The Catholic and Orthodox churches recognize some as saints, but not all. And Ulfilas is not Saint Ulfilas, in spite of his accomplishments. The reason, very simply, is Arianism. Most of the Goths who converted, converted and were baptized by Arian bishops and priests, and this would set them at arm's length from the Roman establishment, when Constantine established the Orthodox Nicene branch of Christianity as the official religion of Rome. None of that, of course, prevented the Romans from using Gothic soldiers. 
definitely by 295, and probably earlier there were Gothic troops among the legions deployed against Persia. They fought under Aphoidus, which is a word we're going to hear a lot in these early episodes. Aphoidus is a agreement between the empire and a foreign people. The Romans used them regularly to define terms under which barbarians could settle inside the empire or trade with and receive aid from it. Different foidae contained different conditions, of course, but they were only ever agreed with tribes that had been defeated in battle, and always included a stipulation that the tribe would provide troops to the perpetually undermanned, undermanned legions. Put a pin in that for later. It'll be important. Anyway, troops serving under Aphoidus were known as Federati, and after 295, Goths made regular appearances. They always served under Roman officers, rather than under their own leadership, another common stipulation of Foetus agreements. Obviously, the Romans had no interest in ethnically-based powers arising within the army, so while Goths were promoted and could become officers, a separation between them and their enlisted countrymen was usually maintained. Many Goths took to army and therefore Roman life, and as happens in all border regions, cultures began to bleed. Across the border, that is. The Goths learned to buy things, rather than barter for them. Returning Federate soldiers sported Roman-style haircuts. By the time of Constantine's civil wars, the Goths were an established element of the geopolitical landscape, and emperors both fought them and sought their assistance, on both sides of the border. That didn't mean that raiding stopped. They were still nearly an annual occurrence, but the days of mass invasion and devastation had for the moment passed. Prejudice against the Goths, though, still remained, and would remain a constant in Roman society, waxing and waning, but never fully disappearing. The feeling was mutual, and anti-Roman sentiment, as much as religious sentiment, drove the Gothic persecutions in the 340s and 60s. In the interest of moving along, I'm going to jump a bit ahead to 366, and the Emperor Valens Gothic War. Because it allows me to introduce the first two men that really stand out in the narrative as actual characters, and I think you'll agree we've been sorely needing some of those. First is Athanaric, who I mentioned last episode as an example of a Kindens, a judge of the Tervingi. Athanaric was certainly a chief, and he was probably fairly young when he came into the story and was elected Kindens in response to Valens' invasion. The second is Athanaric's rival chief, Fridigern. Fridigern was perhaps miffed at losing the elections to Kindens, and apparently chafed under Athanaric's overlordship. Athanaric was of the Balthi clan, and so of higher birth than Fridigern, but one gets the sense that Fridigern felt he was a better man for the job, regardless of birth. If Athanaric was concerned about Fridigern's resentments, he had to put that pan on the back burner for the moment. There were bigger issues to be worried about. To explain the war that brought about Athanaric's election, I need to back up a bit and provide some background about Roman imperial politics. The brothers, Valentinian and Valens, had come to the imperial throne in 364, Valentinian ruling in the west, Valens in the east. From the start, the situation in the east was precarious. The previous emperor had retreated from the eastern frontier and left it vulnerable to Persian incursions. Valens' first move was to gather his forces and move east to shore up those defenses. The army, though, had its own ideas about where it should be used, and it wasn't away in the Far East. Everyone knew those filthy Goths were planning a major attack, so why was Valens taking them away from the real problem? Meanwhile, back in Constantinople, an official named Procopius declared himself in insurrection, and quickly took control of Asia and Bithynia. When news of this reached Valens, he initially considered capitulation and even suicide, 
but managed to pull himself together and dispatch an army under subordinates to deal with the usurper. But when they reached Constantinople, those legions defected. It took eight months for Valens to get the situation under control, eventually defeating Procopius in 366. Procopius was arrested and executed by his own troops after his defeat, and his memory was damned. Now what does any of this have to do with the Goths? Well, Procopius had made contact with the king of the Grithungi, that would be the Eastern Goths, remember, whose name was Ermanaric, and arranged for the Goths to supply him with troops. The 30,000 men Ermanaric sent south arrived too late to help Procopius, but they invaded Thrace anyway. They had, after all, come all that way. Fresh from his defeat of Procopius, Valens continued north, surrounded the offending Goths, and forced their surrender. Ermanaric protested, but Valens and his brother, possibly motivated by the anti-Gothic sentiment that was still strong in the army, refused to come to terms. And in the spring of 367, Valens crossed the Danube and attacked the Tervingi. Wait, what? It was the Grithungi that had sent troops to Procopius. Why was Valens picking on the Tervingi? Well, I remember I mentioned that the Balthi were the second family, and the rank after the Amali. Balthi were tributaries to the Amali Ermanaric, and so the Romans considered them a legitimate target for their attack. Plus, the vast majority of raiding over the years had been perpetrated by the Turfingi, regardless of the immediate case. And, really, one Goth was not too different from another, as far as the soldiers were concerned. The Roman incursion prompted the election of Athanaric as Kindens, and he quickly moved to deny Valence any kind of meaningful victory. He adopted a Fabian approach that has been effective in asymmetrical warfare throughout history, withdrawing into the Carpathians with his forces and refusing to fight directly. Valens rampaged around Wallachia, burned some easily rebuilt villages, and then was eventually forced to return to Moesia. Ammianus Marcellinus summed up the conclusion of the campaign in his history dryly, quote, He returned with his men without having suffered any loss, and indeed without having inflicted any. End quote. Matters could not thus stand, of course, if the honor of the army and the emperor personally were to be preserved. But flooding prevented Valens from mounting a campaign the following year. If that sounds like a victory for Athanaric and his Goths, it's not really. They had avoided defeat in the field, but the legions had prevented or destroyed the year's harvests, and so the flooding of the fertile river valleys piled catastrophe on misfortune. It never rains, but it pours, in this case literally. Athanaric would have to make a stand when the Romans inevitably returned. He called on help from Ermanaric and the Grithungi in the following year. They complied, and when Valens crossed the Danube again in 369, they met the Grithungi somewhere in modern Moldavia. The Grithungi withdrew, but in doing so drew the Romans further into Vingian territory, extending their supply lines. At that point, Athanaric accepted battle, somewhere between the Prut and Dniester rivers. The Goths lost but Athanaric managed to maneuver to avoid complete destruction, and the frustrated and overextended Romans were forced to come to terms. Valens, who had already returned to Marcianopolis by the time of the battle, had no choice but to treat Athanaric as an equal, which is not how Roman emperors preferred to treat barbarians. Famously because of his position as Kindens of the Goths, Athanaric refused to set foot in Roman territory. So he and Valens met on a boat in the Danube, which is a wonderful image in my mind. Valens, in my mind, looks quite grumpy, though. The agreement was decidedly mixed. The formerly free trade zone that prevailed along the Danube was restricted to two trading posts, and the Romans ceased paying for federate troops from the Tervingi. The Goths also handed over hostages. 
Valens went back to Constantinople and made himself feel better by taking the triumphal title Gothicus. On the Gothic side, the Romans agreed not to interfere in Gothic affairs. The termination of the Foetus agreement left Athanaric with greater manpower, and the non-intervention agreement allowed him to turn around and deal with his internal enemies, which is to say, Fritigern and the Christians. Athanaric's persecution lasted from 369 to about 372, and was carried out systematically with the cooperation of the Ricks that had elected Athanaric as kindons. This was the persecution in which St. Sabah was martyred. The persecution was directly connected to the hostility toward Rome that the last decade had engendered. Rome had now officially become a Christian state, and had been one for over 50 years. Christians were seen by Athanaric and an apparently significant number of his compatriots as a potential fifth column that was continually growing amidst his people. He feared that the essential nature of the Gothic way of life would be destroyed, and sought to extirpate the threat. The majority of Goths were still pagan at this point, but Athanaric was too late, and his persecution could not and would not heal the split within the Tervingi, instead only deepening the divisions among them. The threat Athanaric perceived was personified by Fritigern. Remember, he had been lurking in the background since Athanaric's election, and now, in Athanaric's self-defeating persecutions, Fritigern sensed an opportunity. The judgeship was essentially a time-limited monarchy, but Athanaric had now been kindons for eight years, and Fritigern began to suspect that the time-limited part of that post might be cast by the wayside. Presumably, there were other chieftains who feared the same. Fritigern contacted Valens in secret, and sought support for a coup against Athanaric. The emperor was interested, obviously, besides his personal irritation. The emergence of a united Gothic monarchy on the Roman doorstep was a horrifying geopolitical prospect. Valen's support did come at a price, though, and that was Fritigern's conversion to Christianity. Fritigern agreed, thereby justifying Athanaric's paranoia, really. This horse-trading of faith, contrasted with the absolute rock-solid conviction of bishops and apologists, is a really striking feature of this period for me. It also leads to me seeing Fritigern maybe unfairly as a bit of a slippery character. Judge for yourself, though, as we go along. I also need to take note here of a fact about Valens that I haven't mentioned. He was an Arian. For a brief window, the Arian heresy found itself with imperial support. It wouldn't last long, but the vicissitudes of history meant that it was Arianism that Fritigern's people adopted. Whatever plot Fritigern and Valens cooked up, though, ultimately came to nothing. We know that because Athanaric was once again chosen as Kindons when a new, terrifying threat appeared out of the east. The Huns. The Huns will get their own whole series of episodes to themselves in the near future. I've already written one and a half of them. So we'll leave them to the side for now and talk about the first Gothic kingdom that they faced and defeated. Um, spoiler. I've already mentioned the king of the Grithungi, Erminaric. Erminaric of the Amali clan was a remarkable figure, a hero king in the Germanic saga tradition. By 370, he directly controlled or accepted tribute from all of the lands between the Black Sea and the Baltic. Maybe. He's described as a Gothic Alexander, but that's a point of contention, and it's possible that his reach maybe wasn't quite as wide as that. Archaeology identifies a group of finds called the Chernyakov culture as belonging to the Grithungi, and its reach isn't nearly that wide. That being said, Erminaric was without doubt a powerful man ruling a fell people, and the end of his story certainly qualifies him for full mythic king status. I'll start with the most sober version, the one that appears in Ammianus Marcellinus's history. 
Ammianus mentions Erminaric only once in admiring tones. Quote, Erminaric, a very warlike prince, and one whom his numerous gallant actions of every kind had rendered him formidable to every neighboring nation. End quote. But he was aging, and when the Huns arrived, he was unprepared to meet the threat. The story related by Jordanes is much more colorful, and that's the story that found its way into German myths across the continent. And here's a brief moment of horribleness. Scrub ahead 15 seconds if you don't want to hear it. Erminaric had put down a rebellion by a tribe called the Rosomani, but was unable to capture its leader. In frustration, he executed his wife, a woman named Sunilda, by having her torn apart by horses. Which is, you know, extreme. Sunilda's brothers came looking for revenge, which you would think that Erminaric would have foreseen. They managed to stab the old king in his flank, but he survived, though debilitated by the wound. When the Hunnic assault fell on the Grithungi, Erminaric was too weak to muster an effective defense, and though his men fought bravely, they were quickly overwhelmed. The king, distraught at the defeat and in physical agony, died shortly after the initial attack. There is a suggestion that he committed ritual suicide at the age of 110 in an effort to save his people and his lineage, and so he passed into the oral tradition of the Germans. Variations on Erminaric's story appear in the Norwegian Thridek saga, the Nibelungenlied, the Volsung saga, and the poetic and prose Eddas of Iceland. I'm thinking about adding an episode on the heroic tradition to the production schedule, because the transition from historical figure to paradigmatic epic hero is worth exploring deeper. But the Huns aren't going to wait for us to hash out the literary consequences of Erminaric's self-sacrifice. The Grithungi either surrendered or fled, bringing news of the terror and seeking Athanaric's protection. Athanaric moved quickly. There was a reason he kept being elected as kingdoms. He gathered an army and positioned them on the west bank of the Dniester, where he built a Roman-style armed camp. A vanguard force was sent across the river and about 20 miles east to observe the Hun advance. The Hun simply went around them. They crossed the Dniester on a moonlit night and surprised Athanaric at his fortification. Quote, Athanaric was stupefied at the suddenness of their onset, says Marcellinus. He was able to withdraw the bulk of his army. He had a talent for that kind of maneuver. But the Huns had the initiative. Athanaric regrouped on a plateau between the Prut and Sirat rivers in central Moldova. By this point, he must have not only had his army, but their families as well. He set about building a long rampart or palisade to protect his southern flank, so we have to imagine effectively an enormous temporary city, or series of temporary towns, presumably mostly tents, behind a long ditch and palisade-type fortification. There have been attempts to identify the remains of this fortification, but no consensus on any finds. The Huns attacked again before the work could be finished, again from an unexpected place. The Goths managed to squeak out a draw and survive, mainly because the Huns were apparently encumbered with booty. This means they must have been returning from raids to the southwest of Athanaric's position, in the Tervingai heartland. It seems that the vast majority of the Tervingai were holed up behind Athanaric's walls, and the Huns had already taken control of the surrounding country, looting it at their convenience. Which meant that the Goths had no way to feed themselves. When Athanaric had fought Valens, he had been able to make a series of tactical retreats and remain well supplied enough to see the war through, with problems only appearing in the third year of the war. Now, though, the supply line collapsed immediately. It hadn't fully recovered from the Roman War, and division among the Goths, between Athanaric and Fritigern, had slowed down that recovery even more. The Hunnic devastation completely kneecapped the Goths' agricultural economy and whittled the Tervingai's options down to an unattractive list. They could stay where they were, 
and starve. They could submit to the Huns and be enslaved. They could fight and die, or they could abandon their homeland and flee to another. Athanaric's prestige was badly damaged by all of this, and Fritigern stepped into the leadership vacuum that was beginning to open up. He pointed out that he still had contacts among the Romans. If the Tervingi would follow him, he could negotiate a safe passage into the Empire where they could find protection and food and maybe even land. Most of the Goths agreed with Fritigern's plan. They moved south to the north bank of the Danube and abandoned Athanaric to his fate. They set up camp along the river, but could not cross without the permission of the Emperor himself, so they would have to wait. Athanaric initially planned to follow, but thought better of it. He and his followers that were left to him needed to find a place to spend the winter, though, so they turned west into the mountains. They pushed up into a valley in the Carpathians, no one knows exactly where, and unceremoniously turfed out the Sarmatian tribes that lived there. They were able to hold on there for the winter before crossing over into Transylvania to look for a more permanent place. The multi-ethnic confederation that had existed mostly peacefully since the Goths had settled in Scythia was broken. St. Ambrose offered a pithy summary of the events after the Huns' arrival. The Huns fell upon the Alans, the Alans upon the Goths, and the Goths upon the Sarmatians. The dominoes were falling all across Europe. While Athanaric was making his rather ignominious escape, the vast majority of his people, tens upon tens of thousands, gathered on the shores of the Danube. Attempts to cross by individuals or small bands were forcibly turned back by the Roman garrisons. Fritigern did not attempt to force the crossing en masse, as it would destroy any hope of a satisfactory deal with the Romans. But any deal could only be made with the Emperor's personal consent, and Valens was 900 miles away at Antioch. So Fritigern and his chiefs and their subjects, men, women, and children, waited. In Antioch, the imperial bureaucracy debated the best course of action. To admit the Goths would put huge strains on the Empire's resources. On the other hand, Moesia and Thrace were still depopulated and the army undermanned. Here could be a solution to both problems. On the other other hand, repopulating an area with the people who had been responsible for its depopulation in the first place just seemed like foreign conquest with extra steps. On the other 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 hand, barbarians had been integrated into the imperial structure before. Assimilation of outsiders was one of the empire's greatest strengths. Eventually, confidence that this was still the case won the day, and Valens sent word to the Danube garrisons to let the Goths cross. The exact terms for this permission are unknown. It seems that the deal was different from that usually offered to barbarian groups wishing to settle in the empire. For one thing, such settlers, who were called coloni, usually had to be defeated in battle, and there was a ceremony associated with the agreement, which included the ritual disarmament of the coloni. It's been suggested that the original agreement did require the disarmament of the Goths, but the local officials were unable or unwilling to enforce the requirement. Those local officials were faced with probably the greatest refugee crisis of the ancient world. Estimates of their numbers vary widely, because of course they do. This is ancient history. Numbers are always hard. Eunapius, who was a near contemporary, says there were 200,000 Goths altogether, civilians included. Modern historians, as they will often do, dismiss that idea as partly rooted in hindsight and self-justification. Historian Peter Heather suggests 10,000 warriors for Fritigern and his Tervingi, with 50,000 people altogether. I should note, also, the Tervingi were not the only Gothic group that had fled the Huns to the Danube. 
a group of Grithungi under the leadership of a pair of chiefs named Alatheus and Saphrax, had also arrived, with about an equal number of followers. So that brings the total number of Goths of all ages and classes to between 90 and 100,000. Crammed up against the river, with as many of their belongings as they could carry, the worry that the Huns might appear behind them at any moment, and a dwindling supply of food. The crossing of the Tervingi was not carried out with what we might imagine to be Roman efficiency. The ferries that regularly carried passengers and goods across the river were insufficient for the task, and the Romans seemed to have taken very little care in keeping family or clan groups together, which led to confusion and distress on both banks. Food was being brought in, but there was never enough of it, and what there was passed through the hands of officials who were prepared to play favorites. The opportunities for personal enrichment proved too tempting to the Roman commanders along the Danube frontier, and as they sold food for ever higher prices, desperation mounted. People sold themselves into slavery, or sold their children into slavery. The most pathetic story concerns the sale of a noble child in exchange for rotten dog meat. The corruption was great enough to draw condemnation from almost every source, and this was a world where government corruption was seen as part of the pay package up to a point. It was clear that the situation was volatile, so local troops began to escort groups of Tervingai away from the river. While that certainly seems like a wise solution to the problem, it created a new one. The Roman army had been receiving, feeding, organizing, and disarming at least some of the Tervingai, while simultaneously maintaining the border against the excluded Grithungai. It turned out they did not have the troops to spare for escort duty and still perform all of those missions. Saphrax and Alatheus forced their way across the river, and after some time established contact with Fritigern's camp. The Romans were unable to push the Grithungi back, and they became a wild card in the region. Fritigern, though, still wanted to work with the Romans as far as possible. The commander and overall charge of the resettlement project was named Lupicinus. Once the Goths were sufficiently organized, he ordered Fritigern to move to the military headquarters at Martianopolis, which Fritigern did, though progress was slow. The Goths set up camp outside the walls of the city. Lupicinus invited Fritigern and his co-leader Alaviv to a feast. An ironing out of differences kind of thing. Maybe get this whole undertaking on firmer ground going forward. Maybe. That's the most charitable possible reading of Lupicinus' actions. That that is what he was aiming for, and that everything that happened afterwards was a misunderstanding. Or maybe he'd set things up in an effort to remove the charismatic heads of the Gothic snake. What happened was a shoving match broke out between the Roman troops that escorted Fritigern's party from the gates and his Gothic bodyguards. The noise panicked the already jumpy masses outside the gate, who rioted, demanding access and an opportunity to resupply from the garrison's food stores. In response, Lupicinus ordered the Goths' escort troops cut down, and Fritigern and Alaviv killed. Fritigern managed to slip out of the city, but Alaviv was killed. Fritigern quickly organized his people into an open revolt. They swept out into the countryside, burning and pillaging all across Martianopolis' hinterland. Lupicinus raised his own troops and set out to stop them, but only nine miles from headquarters he was badly beaten by the fed-up Goths. The commander himself survived, but all the regional military forces of Thrace and Lower Moesia had been eliminated. Fritigern's rebellion offered an opportunity to others. A Gothic federate unit stationed at Adrianople mutinied and joined the Tervingi. 
Disgruntled miners from across Thrace walked off the jobs to join, and Fritigern enjoyed support and intelligence from many local populations that were disenchanted with their urban persecutors. The Gotha Menores, Ulfalaz's people, however, declined to join the uprising, and as a result they were driven from their homes and had to hide in the Balkan Mountains as the Tervingi raged across Moesia and Thrace. Fritigern focused on capturing military materials to supplement the weapons they'd managed to hold on to, but their inability to manufacture themselves, new ones, remained a perpetual logistical problem for them. Valens refused even after the defeat of Lupicinus to take the Gothic threat too seriously. He had, after all, defeated them on their own territory only seven years before, and he was preparing for war against the Persians and was reluctant to abandon his plans. He did not initially grasp the vast strategic difference between the two situations. And so the Goths raged at will across the countryside, opposed only by piecemeal responses, and were further strengthened by the arrival and joining of Saphrax and Alatheus and their Grithungian cavalry. Eventually, Valens pulled himself together enough to gather his army in southern Thrace, around June of 378. He was encouraged by the defeat of a Gothic plundering column by his general, Sebastianus, with only 2,000 men. Fritigern was aware of the emperor's arrival, of course, and concentrated his forces near the city of Kabyle. I feel another map coming on. Further good news for the Romans was en route in the person of the western co-emperor, Gratian, who was fresh off of a successful campaign against the Alamanni and had already reached the edges of Moesia. Lastly, Valen's intelligence told him that the Goths had only 10,000 men with them. The emperor was eager for a victory to equal Gratian's defeat of the Alamanni and saw an opportunity to put an end to the Goths' two years of chaos. I should note here that the Romans were, through most of their history, terrible at scouting and military intelligence. Valens had decided to seek battle. He positioned his army near Adrianople, exactly where is still an open question. After a council of war, he received an envoy from Fritigern respectfully, though he did not take the ambassador's message at all seriously. Fritigern demanded all of Thrace with its livestock and produce as federate territory. This was, of course, rejected. The idea of establishing a quasi-independent Guthuda on Constantinople's doorstep would never be acceptable. In the few days before the battle, Fritigern sent at least two other ambassadors. It's probable that he was just playing for time, hoping to gather more men before battle began. On August 9th, 378, Valens set out from his camp to meet the Gothic host. It was a march of 11 miles in August, and as the Romans drew near, the Goths set fire to the grass along the road so that the legions arrived hot, dehydrated, and exhausted, and choked with smoke. As the two armies drew up in formation, one last embassy arrived from Fritigern. This seemed to have some promise to it, as Valens demanded that if Fritigern wanted to talk, he should send suitably highborn representatives rather than the rabble that had been sent. The Goths agreed to this on the condition that a noble Roman or two was sent as hostages in return. Ricamiris, a noble in Valens's party, agreed, and was preparing to leave when the whole discussion was rendered irrelevant. Two units, exasperated by the long march and infuriated by the Goths' continuous obstinacy, attacked without orders, and dragged the rest of the army along with them in a disorganized rush to avoid being outflanked. They were met by the just-arrived cavalry forces of Saphrax and Alatheus, who smashed into the Roman right and rolled up the line before breaking off, wheeling round, and doing the same on the left. Fritigern's delays had paid off. 
The historian Ammianus Marcellinus, writing no more than 20 years after the event, capped his history with an account of the Battle of Adrianople. This is the second point where you may want to scrub ahead if you don't want to listen to descriptions of violence. He described the Grithungai's attack as, quote, descending from the mountains like a thunderbolt to spread confusion and slaughter among all whom in their rapid charge they came across. And while arms and missiles of all kinds were meeting in fierce conflict, and Bologna was raging more fiercely than usual to inflict disaster on the Romans, our men began to retreat. But presently, roused by the reproaches of their officers, they made a fresh stand, and the battle increased like a conflagration, terrifying our soldiers, numbers of whom were pierced by strokes from javelins hurled at them and from arrows. Then the two lines of battle dashed against each other like the rams of ships, and thrusting with all their might were tossed to and fro. Our left wing had advanced actually up to the Goths' baggage, with the intent to push on still further if they were properly supported, but they were deserted by the rest of the cavalry, and so pressed upon by the superior numbers of the enemy that they were overwhelmed and beaten down like the ruin of a vast rampart. Presently our infantry was also left unsupported, while the different companies became so huddled together that soldier could hardly draw his sword. And by this time such clouds of dust arose that it was scarcely possible to see the sky, which resounded with horrible cries, and in consequence the darts which were dealing death on every side reached their mark and fell with deadly effect, because no one could see them to guard against them. Now I had told myself that I wasn't going to read all of Amiana's verbatim, but it's just perfect. Nothing I could write would be a patch on it. So, here's a little more. Quote, Amidst all this great tumult, our infantry was exhausted by toil and danger. The ground, covered with streams of blood, made their feet slip, so that all they endeavored to do was sell their lives as dearly as possible. At last, one black pool of blood disfigured everything, and wherever the eye turned, it could see nothing but piled up heaps of lifeless corpses trampled on without mercy. Two-thirds of the Roman army was killed at the Battle of Adrianople. Those that escaped probably did so because of the late start, taking advantage of a moonless night to slip away. Among the dead was Valens, whose body was never found. Actual numbers, as always, are fuzzy. The current thinking is that the Roman forces numbered somewhere between 20 and 30,000, with a high of 40,000 being suggested by Hervig Wolfram. And Fritigern's force numbered about 20,000. Regardless, the battle was a crushing blow, and seen by later writers as the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire. The triumphant Goths were not thinking in terms of great forces' historiography, though. Knowing that there was now no force capable of stopping them, they assaulted Adrianople. The city held against them, but they were undaunted, and attacked town after town, heading toward the imperial capital at Constantinople. And I will leave you there with that moment of danger for the Romans. Thank you for listening, and for hanging in there. I know this episode was a dense cookie to chew on. I will put at least one map up on the website, darkagespodcast.podbean.com, so check that out, as well as check out Twitter at darkagespod. And if you know anyone who'd be interested in all of this, let them know. I am now available on Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts, so please rate and review if you feel like doing so. All of that is very exciting, and I was absolutely giddy to see my first follower appear through Podbean. Thank you. Until next time. Austin dat dominas facium suum tibi et miserator tui. Take care.